Okay, again, Tuesday night, June 2nd, 2015. We're continuing with our training this summer on making disciples. Uh, keep in mind at all times what we call the EPDC. What we want to progress from is evangelism to pastoral care to discipleship to a continuum where the person you're leading to Christ, pastoring and discipling, is themselves leading others to Christ that they can pastor and disciple. Now, we go into that in much more detail elsewhere, so we'll leave that be for the time being. Now, we've been doing on Sunday morning, we started into a series called Eight Essential Elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel Series. And tonight I want to do something supplementary to that that's a little bit more intellectual that wouldn't be for everybody probably. And in order to have what you need to have, you want to have either uh, the eight essential elements of the biblical Christian gospel, the introduction to eight essential elements. And if you look at the bottom of the first page, Roman numeral three, it'll have the, a list of the eight essential elements and outline in an overview of those, right? Or if you have uh, teach, the teaching called from this past Sunday called Element One, the Attributes of God, Roman numeral two of that teaching has the same eight uh, essential elements of the gospel in an overview and outline form. Now, what I want you, what I want to talk tonight about is worldview. So on that. A two-page outline that has a chart on both sides. You need the side of the page that has the worldview overview. And here's, uh, and I want you to notice the correspondence between it and the eight essential elements of the biblical Christian gospel uh, as we go. Okay, so that's why you have the outlines from Sunday. This is a little bit uh, extra. Uh, this will help those of you who minister, especially at university campuses, where you'll have the occasional student that is a pretty good reader, maybe a good thinker, maybe not. Maybe they think they're a good thinker. Uh, uh, maybe they've been trained in logic, maybe not. But they definitely, uh, uh, it, it will definitely help you on a university campus to understand the kinds of things we're going to talk about tonight. Okay. So when we talk about a worldview, we're actually talking about a religion. And every person on the planet has one in their mind and in their heart. Now, the reason that this is, is because as Genesis 1 tells us, that in the image of God we were made, in, uh, male and female he made them, he made, God made us in his image. In theology, that is called the Imago Dei. That we're made, that's Latin for we're made in the image of God. Because of that, even man, ever since the fall of man in Genesis 3, hundreds of various religions have developed that Paul describes in Romans 1 as worshiping and serving the creator, the creator, or, the, or let me rephrase that, worshiping and serving the creation rather than the creator. And if you look at the essence of every worldview other than biblical Christianity and Judaism, uh, there is a form of worshiping and serving the creation going on not the creator. 
And that's why as we studied the attributes of God Sunday, we talked about the transcendence of God because God made the creation. He's not the creation. He's not the God of the bird or the God of the rock, like in polytheism or in Hinduism, which is a type of pantheism. He's the God that created the bird and the rock, but he's not uh, inside of them. He's transcendent beyond them. So tonight we're going to start to look at this concept of worldview. But because man is made in God's image, man is, is inescapably religious. And man asks the three questions we're going to look at in, as we discuss this worldview. All people, can, you cannot be alive and not be asking these three questions and have an answer to these three questions in your mind and in your heart. This is what makes man created in God's image. And so all men believe in ultimate things. All men worship. And all men have ethics and morals and answers to the questions of life in their mind. And hopefully we'll be able to demonstrate that as we go. Now, the first worldview or religious question that all men ask is who or what is ultimately real? For the Christian, if you look at our eight essential elements of the outline and overview, the answer to that is the God of the Bible. The God whose attributes we studied Sunday. For those of you taking our systematic theology class, you study in more depth than what we could do on a Sunday morning, his attributes. For those of you reading a couple of the beginning foundational books on the, the attributes of God, like A.W. Tozier's The Knowledge of the Holy, you're studying the attributes of God in a little bit more complete way than what I could cover on a Sunday morning. Right? So... The first thing that's in men's minds is who or what is ultimately real. In other words, where did we come from? Why are we here? <laughs> where, how did it all begin? Because uh, logically, nothing can come from nothing. So if there is anything... Even the great skeptical philosophers like Descartes, he eventually had to b believe there was something because I'm thinking, therefore I must exist. He tried to doubt everything that he could doubt, and he eventually couldn't doubt existence, and he basically said there must be some reality because I'm thinking. So everybody asked who or what is ultimately real. Now, you might ask, why who or what? Why not, as a Christian would say, who is ultimately real? The triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three persons in one being, eternally existent, in eternal covenant and community. However, not all men know the, the real God and the true God, the living God. So many men have a what, a non-personal answer to that question. So, for instance, if you are a Buddhist, you have a sense of nirvana, that the ultimate goal is to reach nirvana, that is the uh, kind of a oneness 
with the essence of the universe, which is a non-personal spiritual life form, or non-life form. It's a non-personal spiritual power in which we move and exist and have our being, kind of like in Star Wars, the Force is actually mostly a Buddhist concept, although it actually mixes in a Zoroastrian concept because there's a dark and a light side of the Force. In Buddhism, you don't have that. You just have this impersonal energy force, and it's your personality and your desires and your uh, the things that, that are highly desirable in a Christian worldview uh, that are keeping you from experiencing oneness with that uh, transcendent force. But that force is in no way personal. You can't have a relationship with the force. You can't say, I'm, I love the force. <laughs> it, it's just a cosmic energy existence kind of thing. So now when you ask who or what is ultimately real, Historically, there are four major categories that you'll see on, on the left of your page. The first is polytheism. So I always tell a joke about that. Uh, most of these things come from Greek words. Poly is the Greek word for many, right? And uh, I just had an experience where I went hiking in the woods on Sunday, and on the, on the way back, uh, we were stopped at Lowe's. And my wife, thankfully, happened to notice two ticks crawling up my one on my shirt, one on my pants, crawling up toward my head to try to burrow in. And thank God she got them because a tick is a blood sucking insect. And so poly ticks is many blood sucking insects. <laughs> okay, so that's my uh, little joke to help you remember in case you don't know what the prefix poly means. Many. So in polytheism, it's the idea that there's many gods. Now, in most polytheistic religions, whether you're talking uh, the ancient Mesopotamians, the Egyptians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Norse mythology, in most polytheistic uh, systems, even many uh, Native American tribes had polytheistic systems, there's usually one sort of great spirit, like in, in Greco- mythology it's Zeus also in in the Romans the Romans basically had the same gods as the Greeks with uh, more Latin names so um, he was called uh, um, Jupiter in uh, the Roman and also Jove is it yeah and uh, same person so um, so there's usually this idea of like one God that's the greater God but not in any biblical sense. He's not necessarily transcendent. He's not eternal. There's a myth of, always of how this God came to be. Um, and they're anthropomorphic. That is, they have the characteristics of men, including our flaws. So in polytheistic systems, there's no idea that, the, that God is holy. The great gods are lustful petty, jealous, and just as sinful and narcissistic as uh, a teenager today <laughs> in America, uh, if you know what I'm saying. Or unfortunately, too many grown-ups as well. But um, 
So in polytheism, uh, I've listed to the right there some of the some of the most common uh, polytheistic systems, which we've already named. So we'll move on. But it's the idea that there's many gods. It's important that you understand that they're they have human characteristics, anthropomorphic characteristics, but they are not in any way considered to be uh, infallible, immutable, unchanging, or anything like this. They're not holy in any way. Nor are they necessarily particularly loving. So in a lot of polytheistic systems, doing various uh, copying, copulating in the fields and various sexual rites of sexual temple prostitutes and everything else, all of these things were seen to be done to appease the gods from because they saw, uh, you know, fallen men can see that ever since the fall of man, there's been uh, tornadoes and earthquakes and fires and famines, and there are bad things seemingly. And so polytheistic uh, people who live in blindness and darkness tend to attribute this to whimsical gods that we can try to appease. with various usually immoral acts. Some of the saddest polytheistic gods, of course, Moloch worship, uh, which is the spirit behind the abortion controversy of our day, Moloch worship. They would uh, take a statue with his hands out like this, who they worshiped as Moloch, and they would heat the statue up until it was burning hot, and then they would sacrifice an infant by putting the infant on Moloch's hands and burning the infant alive. Uh, to somehow uh, try to help appease us from the, the wrath of tornadoes and hurricanes and so forth. So that's an important part of polytheism uh, as well. And that's where you had temple prostitutes. Ashtra, for instance, some of the ones that you, the Babylonians had and the Chaldeans and the ones that are mentioned in the Bible, like um, Jezebel was a worshiper of the, she was a Sidonian. We were talking about Sidonians at dinner tonight. And, uh, she was, uh, a Canaanite Sidonian and she was a worshiper of Astra religion, which Astra was, uh, uh, goes back to even further to Mesopotamia. And it was uh, a female deity with hundreds of breasts. So it wouldn't, you know, like the average lady has two. And uh, and uh, in the Astros, they had like 100 different uh, breasts, and it was a whole sexual thing. And then uh, that usually corresponded to Baal worship, and Baal was uh, an erect male penis. Uh, adult, we got adults here, right? So, and uh, and they did all sorts of lewd and disgusting acts with these gods in the in the fields and with the temple prostitutes and so forth, people have this hard time understanding, you know, why the God of the Bible was was upset at the Canaanites. But if you would just study what Canaanite religion was, it would make a little bit more sense because human sacrifice and, and all sorts of paganistic rituals that were that were as disgusting as you could imagine and more were was part of of that uh, the outworking of those religions now pantheism uh some of you have heard of pan-american lines airlines or panasonic panasonic sonic means sound panasonic's a corporation 
ironically a Japanese corporation with a Greek name, uh, meaning all the music or all the sound. And um, because pan means all. So I sometimes joke uh, when people say, well, what is your eschatology? And I'll say, I'm a pan millennialist. And uh, they'll say, what is a pan millennialist? And I'll say, well, I think it'll all pan out in the end. <laughs> Jesus will return, but other than that, I don't have it all figured out. Uh, so I'm not going to sell many books. You know, you're supposed to have it all charted out and know why Russian helicopters have to do with some crazy verse in Ezekiel or something. Not that the verse is crazy, just the interpretation thereof. <laughs> um, so... Uh, if you want to sell books, then get into that sort of uh, what they call dispensational premillennial fantasy world, and you can sell books and become popular and have a TV show. <laughs> and uh, so, um, pantheism is a is a religion that, in a sense, believes everything is God. It's not God is not transcendent. There, there's uh, depending on the pantheistic scheme. Some pantheistic schemes only animistic and, and plant things, herbivore things are are have God in them, but maybe inanimate things like rocks do not. But most pantheistic thing systems, God is the God of the rock and the God of the frog, and may the force be with you. And uh, uh, God is not a personal being. A God is an energy force, and and. In, in it, we live and move and have our being. Whereas the book of Acts says that in him, we live and move and have our being. So um, this is why in uh, uh, various um, pantheistic schemes, in, um, uh, such as Hinduism and ultimately Mormonism, which is what's called a pseudo-Christian cult. It looks Christian in some senses, but ultimately it's a pantheistic scheme. And Jesus Christ was just one of the first human beings to believe that God is in us all, and we're all in God, and we're all actually our God. Mormonism believes what the serpent told Eve in Genesis 3. You are God yourself, determining for yourself good and evil. And that there's this big cosmic force and, and people get born out of that force and, and go back into that force. And, and uh, so the idea develops call of reincarnation. And so I don't mean to be de denigrating, and I probably wouldn't say this joke if I was talking to a follower of Hinduism. But in Hinduism, uh, there's this idea of called karma. And it's not the same idea as the biblical idea of sin. And it's not even particularly that close. On the surface, it might seem so. Because in the, in the Bible, sin, uh, people are culpable for their sins. That is, you're, you take the moral responsibility thereof, and you will be judged accordingly. God will judge the secrets of all men's hearts and their deeds and actions through a living human being our Lord Jesus Christ. However, in uh, Hinduism, you develop a, uh, for every evil act, you develop bad karma, and this karma controls your destiny. 
and in a way, the the, the the second and third Star Wars movies were uh, into the concept of karma, because once you start going down the dark side, you'll it'll control your destiny. And the problem with karma is there's no atonement for your sin. There's no forgiveness. So there's this theoretical idea that if you're basically good, you'll be when you die, you'll be reincarnated as a little higher being. And if you're basically evil, it'll be a worse being. But essence, in essence, almost everyone is storing, everyone knows that man is basically not that good. So, so you're storing up bad karma. And I remember my, my wife and I um, sharing the gospel at Wright State when we first started the RCF ministry. We shared with a girl uh, whose parents were from India, and, and she, they had then moved to Morocco, and she had kind of a mixture of Hinduism and modern Western secularism and so forth. And she, like so many uh, today in, in what they call the postmodern era, people have a little of this worldview and a little of that worldview and a little of this other worldview. And the part, she didn't practice many of the things of Hinduism she thought were nuts, but she liked karma. And she said, I actually heard the gospel from a Christian roommate, and I, did, I do not like the Christian gospel. And I we said, why? And she goes, because in the Christian gospel, your God died to forgive your sins, and you don't have to pay for them. And it, because she held on to a certain number of bitternesses and unforgivenesses and angers, and that was important to her, that was a God she an idol she wanted to hold to, she didn't like that someone could get off that easily by grace. She liked karma much better, and she knew the difference. And she said, I, I, like, uh, I don't like the idea of substitution or atonement in Christianity where someone else paid the price for your sins. She understood it pretty well, I think. And she flat out... Uh, had certain bitternesses and angers that were the most important parts of her life, and she didn't. And she understood the implication that if God died to forgive our sins, that she'd have to forgive others, and that she was not prepared to do. So um, now we we rarely get a conversation that's so. It was very amiable. It was very clear. Uh, she understood us per perfectly. We understood her perfectly. Uh, we parted as friends. And uh, I even see her from time to time on campus uh, and still say hi. But uh, in pantheism, you get reincarnated based on your karma, and therefore you come back as lower and lower forms of life. This is why in Hindu uh, culture, they will not eat any meat, cows, whatever. Now, among many Hindus who are more nominal, they'll eat certain kinds of meat, but not others, which doesn't make any sense in their scheme, but, uh, but it's more of a nominal Hinduism, which, uh, and so forth. But in the, in the strict Hindu uh, faith, they will actually have temples that they build that are filled with rats, and they bring honey and milk and grain 
uh, to feed these rats. And they are very fat and well-fed and cared for rats in the middle of uh, people all around them dying. So in one sense, in Hinduism, your Uncle Louie may actually be a rat. <laughs> uh, many of us have said, my Uncle Louie's a rat. But, uh, <laughs> but in Hinduism, it's true. Uh, but um, the idea in Hinduism is that if, um, if um, you're a particularly sinful person, but you still come back as a person, there are higher and lower castes. And that's why India has been very stagnated economically by Hinduism for 4,000 years. Because in the caste system, how you, the wealth level you were born into, you deserved it because of your karma. And there is no forgiveness. And therefore, the two lowest classes are, are untouchable. They're morally filthy. And we cannot have compassion on them or feed them. And if they are dying in the streets with sores all over their body, being food for insects and the rats, they deserved it because of their past life. And if you're born into the privileged and special classes, you must have been a good person. In fact, Buddhism came out of Hinduism because Buddha rejected all that and went out seeking truth and stayed in a pantheistic system but developed another pantheistic religion. And so Mother Teresa, who uh, is really a wonderful, interesting figure in history because she talks about how she constantly was nagged with primal doubts about God and Christ and the Christian faith, but she but believed it, but she was honest that she struggled with her faith all her life, yet she acted upon her faith because in Christianity, man is made in the image of God and the injustices economically are not a result of people's past sins. They're born and they're appointed unto God once to die. Then comes the judgment, Hebrews 9, 27. And therefore, all men have value and all men have dignity. And she built organizations of nuns to, to take care of the untouchables. Because they were considered so unclean morally that it would be about equivalent to you going out and playing with dog manure your mom or dad when you're a little kid little kids sometimes do stuff like that but your mom and dad don't normally endorse that <laughs> and uh and that's kind of the that's kind of the attitude that gets developed in hinduism toward the hurting they were born into it because they deserved it from past lives does everyone get that and it's, there's this irony built into the whole system because there's all this compassion on rats and so forth, but no compassion on the lower uh, strata of the caste system. Uh, of course, next is Christian theism, of which Judaism is a, is, is a type. Christianity is a type. You could also call this monotheism. Um, I'm not going to go into today. I may eventually do some specific teachings uh, about uh, Islam. In fact, uh, next week on Veshta and Deanna don't know this, but they have an appointment to uh, talk on the phone with a, uh, with a man that is part of an organization that has um, 
about 200 teams of six people each that plant churches throughout the whole Middle East in uh, in in countries where the among Muslims. And they don't try to get the Muslims to integrate with the Buddhists and so forth because there's so much division between. They basically just try to lead them to Christ and have a Christian Muslim community, hoping that they'll see their oneness in Christ with, with others later. But um, uh, Islam is a whole different situation. Most people would consider Islam uh, a monotheistic religion, but there's some significant ways in which it really isn't. Um, now I could probably get killed in certain places of the world for saying that. So don't rat me out. <laughs> uh, now, uh, many, uh, pseudo Christian cults, um, at least retain some elements of Christian theism, such as Jehovah's witnesses. Ultimately Mormonism is more uh, a pantheism than and a polytheism than it is uh, a, a monotheism. But many of the pseudo-Christian cults just deny either the divinity of Christ or the, the humanity of Christ, and therefore are outside the bounds of Orthodox and biblical and historical Christianity, but are not necessarily outside the... the uh, the idea of one God. And there are some overlaps between these, like, for instance, in many Native American religions, there was a great spirit that unlike the, the highest gods in Greek mythology and Roman mythology and Egyptian mythology, uh, in, in many Native American forms of the Great Spirit, the Great Spirit was closer to, uh, it, it, you know, uh, to uh, the God of the Bible than the, than the other polytheistic s systems in, in such a way that Paul's speech in Acts 17 would be, you know, would be appropriate. Uh, in a sense, the Great Spirit was an unknown God, and uh Native Americans, uh, unfortunately, at, at, at first, there was some successful effort in, in uh, evangelizing Native Americans and say, and say what's today, New, uh, Massachusetts and New England. Unfortunately, none of these things were sustained over time and so forth. But uh, many Native Americans had somewhat of a mix between polytheism and some sort of theism but that the, 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 one, the one great spirit was not really, there wasn't much we could know about him. <clears throat> so, now lastly uh, is the category. Now, I, I'm going to tell you in a minute that there's, I'm about to say lastly is the fourth category, then I'm going to tell you about a fifth category in a second. But, uh, <laughs> so, uh, it's like in Proverbs where it says there are seven things that do such and such, six that, you know, that's about what I'm about to do to you. Um, so naturalism is the idea, uh, naturalism is better called materialism, but it's the idea that matter is eternal. So in the other schemes, in the theistic schemes, uh, matter usually came out of deity, especially in monotheism, and therefore God is transcendent from matter. And matter is not eternal. 
which goes along better with the first and second laws of thermodynamics. If matter cannot be created, destroyed, but it's always always breaking down into increasing rat- randomness and releasing its energy and becoming a less organized state. Then, if ma- the the problem with matter being eternal is it w- <laughs> is that doesn't really work. <laughs> you know, it, matter would have ceased to exist if there were billions and billions and billions of years. Of course, the billions of years are multiplying fast because when I was a kid, there was only about 2.2 billion years, and now there's over 8 billion years. And uh, man, I've lived a long time. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, so you wondered why I was so old. But, uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, because of course, because there's no real upward mechanistic uh, mechanism for the, for natural selection and evolution that they can actually find that that accounts for a wholesale changes in species and species not being able to interbreed with other species and so forth. Because that doesn't really exist, or they can't find anything like that, they keep lengthening the 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 time that 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 the matter must have existed. Now, some of it's based on more than that. There's actually some legitimate science behind it, like. You know, stars are certain stars that they've now been able to find with better telescopes are 3.8 billion light years away and so forth. Uh, so we won't get into all that. But in, in materialistic religions, uh, keep in mind they are a religion. Almost all Western people have been trained to say, I'm not religious. I'm an atheist or I'm an agnostic. I'm not religious. They are religious. Because they have questions about who or what is ultimately real, and they have an answer in their heart and their mind. And that has a lot to do with why we're such a materialistic society. Because we worship having a better car or having a better looking nose or plastic surgery to enhance certain features. or we It's all about material things. You know, Madonna, I'm a material girl living in a material world. You guys are probably aren't old enough to know who Madonna is. But uh, <laughs> uh, she, she's still around. And, uh, um, you know, um, so the idea is maternally is, you know, materialism is that which is eternally existent. Now, um, and therefore, uh, in materialism, some of the implications of, of it is there's only this life. So if you're really a materialist, he, whoever has the most toys does win. And you actually spend all the money you make on a cooler car and better speakers and and a nose job and uh, whatever. It's always the, like the in the, the 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 advertising industry is constantly telling the materialist, "You need this. You need a better house, cooler watch, Bromex. Uh, <laughs> you know, go, and it can be any nonsense there is. Like you need a grill work on your teeth or, uh, and you know, and there's all sorts of subcultures about which part of the materialistic world we want to worship, you know, but, um, but it really is worship because whatever you give your life to is what you're worshiping. You can come lift your hands up, sing in tongues and clap and worship. Uh, but if you're not living all out for God, you're not worshiping him. 
I could look at your schedule book and, and how you spend your money, and I'll tell you who your God is. That's why it's it's when people don't give a true 10% of their gross income, no matter what their excuse is to the church that they go to, it's quite doubtful whether they know God. Because what you fear and in, in what you obey and what, where you spend your priorities is who you, who you believe in. So you show me someone's, uh, you know, vocational goals. You show me their, uh, how they handle their money with savings, tithing, charity. Uh, you show me what their priorities are with studies, etc., and I'll show you whether they know God or not from their schedule book and their budget. So, in you know, we shouldn't be surprised. Like Christians are so moralistic. Instead of, you know, what you can't convert people to our morals by laws. You know, like saving saving traditional marriage, forget it. It's too late for that. We the the we've already descended into the dark ages as a worldview. And nobody's gonna let the government mer- you know tell them they can't get six, seven, eight divorces, they can't marry three or four people at a time, they can't marry same sex, they can't marry between horses and people and telephones and people for no it's too late for all that what we have to do is lay down our lives no longer seek to serve ourselves uh choose to to die to our, if we seek to save our soul life we'll lose it if we lose it in the service of christ and one another and the outside lost people then we'll find it and the only way the world can know now is they go, wow, you guys have like a, one husband and one wife? And like it's working after 20, 30, 40 years? And the kids are turning out pretty good? What? The what is that? Because I've worshipped at the altar of convenience and what feels good for me now and this was I I just didn't sense after three years that it was a good match and we weren't just you know and and you know we got married because the sex was great but you know we weren't of the same religion or we you know all it's crazy out there because there's no and you're not gonna you're not gonna go on a surface thing like the point three of this is is about ethics and if, there, if we've already lost the battle for who or what is ultimately real and the nature of man, don't try to put our morals on them. That's why uh, people come here, and the first thing they expect because of the moralistic therapeutic deism of American Christianity is that we're going to lay on them. Oh, you smoke. You drink too much beer. Oh, shameful. It's like, forget it. People are always upset because people who don't know the Lord are acting like people who don't know the Lord. (laughs) Duh! Guess what? When I didn't know the Lord, I was out for, like, fun. Hedonism. 
you know, my view, my drug of choice was who could smoke the most pot. And I would claim until later in every afternoon or evening that I really don't drink much until we got really high. Then we start drinking. <laughs> and, and then, uh, you know, and, uh, and then we'd say we're not that into other drugs until, and that marijuana certainly doesn't lead to other drugs until like we started doing more and more drugs, <laughs> you know, because, Ultimately, there, there's no basis for morals. If there's, if you're a naturalist, don't lay on them that they shouldn't smoke and they shouldn't cuss and they shouldn't be effeminate or too or too macho and get in bar fights or they shouldn't curtsy and and do ballet and and wear a bra when they're, you know, a guy or whatever. They because any because there's no basis for any of it. Don't even focus on it. Focus on there really is a God and he really loves you and life really works with him and we can demonstrate it by looking at our lives. You want to know how what Christ is like? Come to my house. Apparently you guys think that Christ goes to Taco Bell after, <laughs> after Tuesday nights. No. <laughs> Just kidding. I don't know about that. <laughs> just that's just a joke. But um, no, you know what I'm saying. Don't a naturalist or a materialist believes that all there is is material. There's just this life. So I might as well. In uh, in and, and, and it gets very much about today. I might as well just have whatever. If it feels good, I'm going to do it. If it seems like it might feel good, I'm going to try it. And, if, and you eventually get some people who do less drugs and drink less because they're tired of getting sick. <laughs> I, I, I actually know quite a few people, have known quite a few people over the years that are really into eating right, and they're really into working out, and they're very diligent about it. Because they know they can last longer doing more drugs and more partying and so forth if they take care of the rest of their life. <laughs> because what there because if you're a materialist, there is no point. Except now. Get all you can. And at any anyone's expense you can. Now Materialism uh, tends to, of course, has to be evolutionary. And I'm not going to do any teaching on that tonight. Uh, we'll probably cover some of the problems with evolution someday, but there's lots of problems. Material would have to be eternally ex existent. There has to be spontaneous generation. Life had to somewhere come from non-life. And thousands of scientists have been working on that for hundreds of years at, with millions of your tax dollars, and nobody's gotten that close yet. Every once in a while, you'll hear a story that was supposedly in Switzerland, uh, I don't know, 10 years ago, that they thought they were going to do it. And, you know, uh, nonsense. So, uh, because they can't say, let there be life. In Christ was life, and the life was the light of men. 
And no matter how much fallen man tries, he'll never create life out of non-life. There are limits to science because we are not creators. We're creatures. So we'll get into some of that and do a whole special thing on the limits of evolutionary thinking. But now, evolution and in humanism work themselves out, as we're going to see, into certain views of humanity and certain views of ethics. But they tend to work themselves out into political religions, which are full-fledged religions. That's why in the Communist Manifesto, there's a short little sentence by Karl Marx and Frederick Engels that communism is a humanism because materialism ultimately usually works its way into the worship of man's reason and of some form of mankind worship. We are the, as if we're, there's always this subtle thing that we are the directors of our evolution. So there's a lot of contradictory thinking in, in evolutionary thinking. Uh, for instance, they want to save the species, but if it, natural selection was true, they should, they should just let what, whatever happens happen. But, uh, but now we've evolved to the point where we're the masters of evolution and we're directing evolution and therefore we should save the gay whales and so forth. And I actually believe out of, out of the uh, uh, fact that we were created in the image of God and we were given a dominion mandate, we are to save the gay whales. The beluga whales, uh, whatever whales, I mean, all the whales, <laughs> no matter what their orientation is. <laughs> so, uh, I hope we hear this. So, um, oh, Hey, Sam, why don't you move this in case I need to uh, cool myself down a little bit more later. Please, move, move your case. So, um, now, materialism, therefore, has to work itself out into a philosophy of economics and a philosophy of, of government, or what's called the state. Okay, because that's all there is in this life. Every person, because we're made in the image of God, again, is religious. And so every person has a sense of justice. Now, for the most part, because of sin, everybody's ideas about justice has been perverted and twisted. So what you consider justice is usually oppressing to someone else's consideration of justice. And if man's inhumanity to man and man's oppression of his fellow man has, has been a major theme in all literature and all history from the beginning, and the oppressors always see it as justice in their twisted way. Does everyone get that? And so um, everyone has this uh, urge. It's called the politics of guilt and pity. Everyone has this urge to vote in or have a revolution or whatever, but we're going to create a more perfect state. Even if we have to kill all the people that are that are hurting us from having a perfect state. And so these these naturalistic religions are called statism in their bigger picture, but they include many modern religions. And if you go back and studied ancient Mesopotamia, 
If you go back and study the um, the Medes, the Persians, the Hittites, the Babylonians, all these ancient cultures and so forth, they were all statist. And they were all planned economies, uh, usually with some form of emperor worship or worship of the state government that was the layer down of law. And so ethics became whatever the state says is right is right. So if the state declares abortion okay, then it must be okay. And if the state says we can take 55% of your income uh, so that uh, when you look at that check and you look at the readout and gross and then there's FICA and Medicare and, you know, and all, all these things, and then you get down to the bottom where it says net three cents. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's not even enough left over for gasoline tax or cigarette tax or alcohol tax or inheritance tax or or property taxes <laughs> because there's a fallen man is one always wants to increase the taxes because the state thinks it's God. Now, God in and, and God always judges a society where the Christians don't actually tithe. They actually taxes go up when the Christians don't tithe. And we've long since been in a situation in America where the average Christian gives 2 or 3% of their income to the church, and that goes back to the Civil War and longer. And ever since then, we've had more and more state. And so that we, you now, you know, the joke is that the 4th of July is Independence Day because you approximately work from January 1st to, to July 4th for the government, and approximately from July 4th to December 31st for yourself. And as long as Christians don't give, God will never reverse that. Because who did God ask for 10% of your income? Who the heck do they think they are? They Well, the answer is this. In statist, humanistic men thinks the state is God. Frederick Nietzsche, a famous German statist, theologian, or philosopher, theology and philosophy is really the same thing. They think it's different because they, they, they will say that non-theistic systems are philosophy and theistic systems are theology. Or the, but in, in essence, they're all religions. Philosophy and theology aren't the same. It's just that one postulates man's reason at the top and the other postulates God at the top. Does everyone, I hope everyone sees that. So in statism, you know, we're, that leads to megalomaniac politicians that are hedonists serving themselves and making a name for themselves and increasing their power base, and they want to do it at your expense. And I, I think you can check into it, I would imagine... Uh, that at least 30%, 40 or 50%, I don't know, but I would imagine a lot of every gallon of gas is actually taxes to the state and federal government. And the reason we don't have solar-powered electronic cars with the technology has existed for 40 or 50 years is because the corporations control the politicians and they are suppressing all that because they can't find a way to tax the sun. And so they've got to continue to pollute and destroy the planet uh, in the it, with gasoline-powered cars because they can tax it to death and increase their power base. 
which of course also keeps Islam quite powerful because Islam depends on that oil money to be wealthy. Just like Islam first expanded in the 7th century because they brought sugar into the world. And they first started the sugar slave trade. And Islam expanded and got wealthy on the backs of the slave trade in the sugar plantations um, that they started. And then they graduated as they controlled more of the Middle East, and especially what is today Turkey. They graduated to controlling the spice routes from east to west and taxing the spices. And so Islam expanded from the time of Muhammad, 622, uh, till 1450 with the, the fall of Istanbul, or what, is, or what was called Constantinople, now Istanbul. And and thereafter, because they could tax the spices in the spice trade. But when the Portuguese, Francis Magellan, Prince Henry the Navigator, and so forth, invented ships that could go around the Cape of Africa, and they could go around the world and bring the spices directly from the east to the west without going through Muslim territory, Islam began to decline until by which they were so wealthy it took three or four hundred years but by the by the end of world war one the ottoman empire collapsed bankrupt powerless and so forth and anyone who really understands islam knows that they believe in forced military conversion and they and and they need the oil trade to do it so the strangers of, you know, they say necessity makes strange bread, fellows. Western culture, uh, the, the gas companies, in order to have our, to have our Western uh, welfare states, the gas companies uh, suppress uh, the, the moving of, of the technology forward into solar-powered electronic cars, which, which both strengthens all the Western governments and strengthens Islam as it continues to expand and dominate the world. And when, but they can't stop it forever. We will have solar-powered electric cars, and uh, uh, it may be a, one or two or three generations past when it should have been. But it'll eventually break the whole oil thing. It'll save the planet, and uh, and create a much better military thing. But the Western democratic uh, welfare states will start to crumble over the, last, the, the loss of the gas taxes. Unless they can do what Greece has been unable to do, quit having more entitlements. Now, all that gets down to is humanism has religions like Marxism, Marxism fascism, socialism, and democracy. And the idea that we should save the world for democracy is just as much of a utopian, nonsensical, religious no morons. Excuse me, I shouldn't say that. Lord, forgive me. It's, 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 it's blindness. It's not stupidness. There's a difference. And so I went too far there. So... But the idea that we can go over and kick one tyrant out of a country and that they're going to have some sort of Western liberal democracy when there's no worldview basis for it is just nonsense.
Okay. Now, I shouldn't have gotten off onto today's current events. Uh, and you probably should stay away from that as much as possible when you're sharing the gospel with individuals because the church is at a very impotent, backward time, and we really need to restore Christianity. Uh, we need to earn the platform to have a voice. Okay. Everyone got that? So, but if you can understand what the, the philosophical basis of materialism and evolution, it must always end up in the Republican Party the Democratic Party, the Socialist Party, the Marxist Party. It must always end up in some form of statism, of the state own, running and controlling our life and de defining what is moral or not moral and, and controlling you. It's the enemy of freedom. There can be no philosophical basis for, for actual freedom without Christ. Is Jesus said that if the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. There's no basis for moral freedom, nor religious freedom, nor political freedom, nor economic freedom outside of a Christian worldview. Let's move on to uh, part two. Now, if you notice on our eight essential elements, the second thing we look at is man. It says essential biblical attributes. Three issues. Culpability, that is, Who's to blame? Empowerment. Um, and, and so forth. Um, so let's look at these three issues. Now, it, it, when we talk about the nature of man, just like God, we, there's a word called innate or, or a, a related word, intrinsic. And when we say intrinsic, we mean, is it built into the nature of things? So, for instance, a goal in discipleship, a goal in education, a goal in parenting, is that your children would take on the intrinsic values of self-discipline. This is important to hear. Uh, Samuel like this one. Uh, what, uh, what happens when we talk about innate or intrinsic is... Um, are you born with it? But uh, we also will get into a debate here, heredity or environment, or can it be cultivated so that it becomes your own internal value system? So we know a kid is growing up when the mom doesn't have to make them practice the piano anymore, they practice for themselves, or it doesn't have to help them see the value of doing their homework and getting good grades. And, and um, you know, some of you are, uh, Wright State graduates and graduate students and so forth, many of you long since didn't have to have your parents sitting there to get good grades, <laughs> right? Because it became your own value system to achieve, right? And you began to see the innate value of that. Now, when we talk about intrinsic or innate, we mean, is it basically born? So the first one a couple of different ways it could be stated is man born with an ethical predisposition or that is with an intrinsic moral nature. And there's usually three basic positions. Is man basically good, basically evil, or a blank slate, which is Latin in Latin called tabula rasa? Are people a blank slate? So if you look at this, this always comes out, your answer to this comes out of your answer to who is or what is ultimately real. 
It's innately religious answer. So, for instance, uh, almost all naturalists, by the way, of the four theisms, polytheism, pantheism, theism, and naturalism, or materialism, I hope you would note it that theism and naturalism are predominantly the two worldviews that have clashed in Western culture since... Uh, Oh, since about the time of Alexander the Great, let's just say, in, in the clash of Hellenism and Judaism. Western culture is actually built on a war between theism and, and naturalism or materialism. Uh-oh. Oh, boy. So can you pause it? on with our discussion of the nature of man. So, um, of course, when I was at the height of my drug days, uh, all I, I could say was, wow, man. And uh, <laughs> that was all I knew about the nature of man at the, in, that, in those years. But uh, um, so what the first question again just to repeat since we had an interruption here so if you're listening on uh audio we i spilled my coffee so we're start started over um i have to probably sit in the corner later but um no use crying over spilled coffee okay so we're basically the first of three questions you ask about the nature of man just like in in uh the first part of the worldview is one question who or what is ultimately real and again, it has to be both a what and a who, because in some worldviews, it's not a personal who. Likewise, in the nature of man, there's three questions. One, um, or but you could reduce it to one question, what is there an intrinsic nature to man? But it would be a three-part answer. The first part, A, is is man got a moral nature? Or is he, are, we, are, we, do, are we born into this world with a, with a propensity toward this or that? John, John, when you ever you can't stay awake anymore, whatever you, you I hope you could, could stay, but if you if you gotta go, that's okay. Um. So, is usually the answers there are is man basically good, basically evil, or a tabula rasa? Now, we live in if if you think that Christianity still has any sway in this culture, uh, I taught for four years classes at Sinclair Community College and. Uh, uh, I particularly taught a class that we that this uh, chart was developed for called the search for utopia, man's search for utopian states that we just got done talking about. And uh, your answer to what is a, a more utopian economic system or state system will be based on your worldview. And I always take a survey and I ask, uh, do you think man is basically good? basically neutral or basically evil. I have never, never had a student choose basically evil. 85 or so percent of students choose that man is basically good. About 10 or 15% say man is basically neutral. It depends on their environment. Now, this is interesting because I will then usually do a whole class on man's inhumanity to man. For instance, in the 20th century, under the name of utopian religions, the Nazis who were going to bring about this, the third millennium, the third Reich, 
uh, killed six million Jews, but most people don't realize they, of course, caused war all over Europe, killing millions. Um, and they killed Catholic priests, they killed homosexuals, they killed gypsies, they killed anyone that didn't uh, go with their view of the state. When the Bolsheviks took over Russia in the name of Marxism, and at the time, people actually, again, man is so fallen and so blind, people actually thought of socialism and Marxism as being left-wing religions and fascism as being right-wing religions. Um, but they're both statism. They're both different spins on the state controlling all of life. And so from a Christian point of view, they're not that different. They're idealistic, utopian. By utopian, I mean in the worst sense of the way, they're a pipe dream that will never work. So Lenin said, good disciple of Karl Marx that he was, if we have to kill millions of people to bring about a more just society, that's what we have to do. And it will be well worth it. Because when you talk about man's intrinsic nature, all religious systems have a, a fundamental idea that something is wrong with man's nature. You, you can't look at society in reality and see man's inhumanity to man, man, man's oppression of his fellow man, and so forth, and not say something is wrong. But in a statistic system, you don't want to say man has a basic problem called sin or a basic twistedness toward greed, corruption, uh, theft, uh, lust, etc. You want to say, well, it's the haves that, that are immoral, not the have-nots. And so what we need is a revolution whereby the have-nots will rise up and overthrow the haves. And therefore, again, all religions have a doctrine of man's moral flaw. It's inescapable. Even Sigmund Freud in his, in his psychoanalytic religion said that the most noticeable thing about human nature in his book, Civilization and Its Discontents, said the most notable thing about all of human nature is that all human beings have an overwhelming sense of guilt and shame. And he placed that, the responsibility for that, on your parents, society, the government, the church, things of this nature. The great blame shifting of modern cult, modern psychology and sociology was off to the races. Not that it was anything new, it was just new that it was cloaked, it masqueraded as something intellectually sound and educated and people who knew big words could could say they could knew and had diplomas <laughs> which uh has never been much of a mark of wisdom but uh so um in in seeing man as having guilt uh, again, psychology is what I call the mother, my mother bit me when I was five syndrome. The reason I'm this kind of addict or I have this kind of problem or I do this kind of immoral behavior or I can't stop this compulsion is because of my bad neighborhood. 
And so in that kind of system, what do we, we need more money for schools. We don't need to rethink how we're doing school. We just need to throw more money at problems and so forth. So um, in the statist view, what the, what we got in so so the first modern uh, I'm just I'm just going to go on to more than one CD tonight. In the first modern, uh, um, what am I trying to say? The first modern revolution called the French Revolution which was very different in its principles from the America's War for Independence. The, uh, the French Revolution was hijacked by the Reign of Terror, Robespierre, etc., who himself eventually died at the guillotine, as Jesus predicted. Those who live by the sword will perish by the sword. Or, to update it to French, uh, you know, the guillotine was considered this modern, very... Uh, humane way of killing people <laughs> and uh um it was its virtues were extolled uh that's how you know fallen logic is quite twisted at times and uh so uh those who live by the guillotine will die, perish by the guillotine but in the reign of terror what they're basically saying is people who are, who are educated and people who came from the propertied classes they have a moral flaw by having owned property. So we can't, like in Christianity, uh, forgive their sins and have them be born again and, and be discipled and grow up into a new nature because they had an education in the old system. They're hopeless. All we can do is kill them and the state can take over the education and raise new generations of people indoctrinated in the state's way. Now, this kind of idea goes back to Plato's Republic when he basically believed that the, the guardians uh, should educate the young and control that the state should control edu all education. And it, it was too late to save the current generation, but we could brainwash new generations to think uh, to make the state their God. So when the communists took over, they eliminated anyone not only who owned property, they, if anyone had Christ, truly Christian ideas, because Christian ideas are inescapably free enterprise and pri private property, they had to be killed. Now, it's interesting that the Nazis and so forth allowed a form of the church, and so did the Bolsheviks, as long as the church preached what they were told to do and stayed out of economic systems or any actual content of man's moral nature or whatever, because... In, in materialistic religions, man is basically good, and they've been, they've been corrupted. They're tabula rasa. Uh, they, they're a blank slate, and, and we can reprogram man, but it's too late for the ones that have already been programmed. We just need to kill them. And therefore, you have uh, one bloodthirsty revolution in the 20th century after another after another. You know, Idi Amin, Pol Pot, you know, the Khmer Rouge, and so forth— uh, North Korea, we we kill our opposition because if they've had a if they've had a university education or they've owned property uh, there, then they have this moral flaw inside them. And see, so the a doctrine of man having a sin nature is inescapable. All religions have that. It's just what you put the sin nature in, and how you eradicate it. In Christian. And all religions, 
the the sin nature has to die. In Christianity, it it died through a substitute, God himself dying for you. And all the immorality of man and all the wrath of man and all the anger of man and all the jealousy of man being put on God's son himself on our behalf. And we can die to ourselves and, and be born again into a new nature and be discipled in that new nature until we become a new humanity made in the image of God and restored to the image of God that was, that God always intended. Whereas that in status systems, that's hopeless, so we must kill those who've been perverted by the old ways. That's why all totalitarian... Now, you better take note of that because there's increasingly uh, moves more and more and more to eliminate people who aren't politically correct. And um, I would say we're probably less than a generation away from arresting and, and jailing uh, people who hold views that are not politically correct. Because if because the Supreme Court has already declared that if you uh, do not believe, say, that homosexual marriage is a good idea, then you're a hater. They struck down the, the states that passed uh, constitutional amendments that out that outlawed gay marriage and so forth, they struck them down, but they, in their opinion, they laid the groundwork for much more to come when they said, if some, if a state or individuals even propose such an amendment, then they are a hater and have lost their right to the political process. Now that's already been decided in court cases several years ago. And that will work its way in our society as we continue to, we have lost freedoms at a steady rate since, since the war for independence and the uh, Articles of Confederation. But it just, it, it happens to be uh, continuing to snowball. Now, the Christian view of that is, is quite complicated because the Christian view is that man is made in the image of God. So there is a sense of justice, and there is a sense of right and wrong, and so forth. However, there's a doctrine called sin, and so sin takes your sense of justice and right and wrong and constantly twists it. One of the things that I, I, I don't do the uh, tell someone about Jesus, and as soon as they say they're not no longer an atheist and they believe in God and they want to quit whatever they're their particular sins of choice are, I want to quit racing my car at 180 miles an hour down the street, or I want to quit beating up little old ladies or whatever they want to change, you know, begin to want to change. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to quit chewing tobacco and spitting or whatever it is. <laughs> That's kind of gross, but uh, people do it. But uh, you know, whatever they want to change, the reason I actually just wait is because they, you, they've actually got to come to a place where they see, um, I've got this moral flaw. I can't do it in of myself. I may be able to squeeze the balloon somewhere, so I might be able to quit smoking. And then what? what's the most classic thing that happens to people who quit smoking? They start overeating, <laughs> right? And uh, 
I used to weigh 120 pounds, then I quit smoking, now I weigh 250, you know. <laughs> and uh, so I decided just to be fat and smoke, <laughs> you know. And, uh, you know, so you you might be able to change a habit or two, but you just can't change the overall fundamental predisposition of your life towards selfishness and short-term thinking and so forth. Because there's a basic moral flaw. They constantly twist us. So in, in a sense, man is basically evil, but it's not quite that simple. The biggest evil, according to the Bible, that all fallen men have is their desire to run from God and suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Their desire to hope Christianity, even most Christians go to church to appease their conscience, and they want a church that's not going to demand too much of them. That's why the doctrine in American Christianity, I don't know where you'd fit this in the Bible, but there's a doctrine in American Christianity is find a church you're comfortable with. Could you imagine Jesus saying that to someone? Take up your cushion chair and your air conditioning and follow me. <laughs> and uh, he who seeks to save his life, well, that's okay. <laughs> as long as you show up because we're trying to compete for members so we don't want to take it any further. Right? Isn't that American Christianity in essence? Um, we don't want to challenge people too much because that's not real popular. The idea that you should actually make Jesus Lord of your attitudes, your motivations, your behaviors, your lifestyle, your your how you work at your job, how you handle your money, uh, that's not a real popular that won't get you on TV or sell books or, or anything like that. Hey, could somebody, would somebody mind getting me another bottle of water, Logan, maybe? Uh, so, um, do we get that? Uh, so every, every worldview, everybody has an idea about the nature of man inside them. And one of the things that, that's why a lot of people call American Christianity today moralizing therapeutic deism because in american christianity today you need a little therapy for your domineering mother or for your alcoholic father or your lack of a father whatever but you don't need like a whole whole makeover you don't need to become a new creation you just need a little moralizing you know like in the blues brothers movie i love that where the the, the nun goes you boys need a little churching up <laughs> And that's like actually a joke that my wife and I t t tell each other, like on Sunday mornings, like we let's let's hurry. We got we need a little churching up because, of course, that means nothing. Of course, but but uh, it means that we're sinners seeking grace together. But um, does everybody get that? So, like, what the idea in American Christianity is? You're basically a pretty good person. God's lucky to have you. And if you've devoided certain sins, then you're even a better person. Like if you never were a drunkard or a druggie or, you know, premarital sex or you never stole a car or chainsaw murder, then you were a Boy Scout and, you know, you helped little old ladies across the street and you always got good grades. And, you know, it's this you're somehow better because you're moralizing. Frankly, the, the people I've had the hardest time helping are people who grew up in particular denominations that I'm almost tempted to announce, but we don't uh, do that here, um, where there's this idea that you're basically pretty good, 
and you went to a basically pretty good school and you got good grades and you always for one usually for reasons that you know frankly you might not have been adventurous enough or you uh you know you were you a lot of times very false motives like you wanted acceptance by the adults and you and you you could discern easily that if you get good grades and you don't get in trouble you get more it pats on the back and more awards and so forth but you weren't you weren't doing any of that for your love of god and that's actually no more moral than than if you were the class bully or or, or the class loser or whatever you were none of it's any because if it's if it's not for the love of god then it's what the bible calls dead works and man's basic fallen problem is they want we want a god that we don't have to give it all to We want to have some still claims to self-righteousness. We want to have some claim that I, you know, I was a Girl Scout or whatever, you know, and, and everyone has their own little version of it is in their head. That's why the Bible says every man's way is right in their own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. And so we have this funny phenomena sometimes where the people who were who lived what we consider the most morally reprehensible lives when they come to Christ they get it all and they're on fire and they love God and the people who were goody two shoes have real trouble getting on fire and loving God until they really begin to see the depth of their sin that just because they didn't act out in certain ways didn't mean you're any less sinful and when you really begin to not only believe that in your head, but it begins to work its way down into your fundamental dependence on God's grace, then you become passionately in love with him. We love because he first loved us. And that he demonstrated his love for us in that when we were yet sinners, that's when he died for us. I hate to, you know, disillusion Greg or Bradbury or, Kennedy or Deanna at all, but God didn't die for you because you were worth it. He died for you because he loved you. And there was nothing good in you that made it worth it other than he chose to, to freely lavish his grace on you. And no, none of us were one iota more deserving than another one. So Again, everybody has a view of whether man is basically good, basically neutral, and we'll get back to the tabula rasa idea, blank slate or neutral, in a minute. The second thing uh, in, in terms of what is man's basic nature, our second question, and in, in, it has three sub-questions, is does man have an innate or an intrinsic or a built-in value? Are people valuable? Now, if you don't think that has answers, you don't understand the death camps of Nazi Germany. Because in an evolutionary system, you're just a product of conception. You're just material. Therefore, you're, if millions of lives, so what?
Therefore, if babies are less convenient, that they might cramp our lifestyle, why wait till they come out of the womb to kill them? Let's just kill them right away in the womb now that we have the technology to do so. Because if I have this baby, like my figure is going to be distorted. Or, it's, you know, I'm going to be inconvenienced. So the difference is in the Christian worldview, man is created in God's image. Every person is worth the effort. People are always wondering. People come here all the time, and they tell me um, in my second or third meeting, like, do you really want to, you know, they'll meet with Catherine or me or one of our other leaders, and they'll be, like, surprised after a third or fourth meeting. Like, you're spending four hours on me? You talk to me on the phone every week, or you have a Bible study with me every week. You let me live in your house. What? You know, I'm not even tithing yet. Are you kidding? Why are, why are you investing in me? Well, because of the Christian doctrine that you were made in the image of God, and the Bible says freely you are given, freely give. If you really believe that when God got me, he got a bad deal. Just like Peter experienced when Jesus, uh, in Luke 5, when he tells him to let down his nets and he catches the great catch and he begins to realize who Jesus is. He throws himself on the beach and says, depart from me, Lord. I'm, I'm not worthy. I'm, I'm not the right guy here. I'm a sinful man. Do you understand who you're saying follow me? You're getting a bad deal here, Lord. <laughs> and until you have that kind of encounter, that's what, I, that's what Isaiah had in Isaiah 6, he said, I saw the Lord, he was high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple, and all the angels were crying, glory, glory, holy, holy, holy. And then he, what did he say? He, like, he didn't say, like, wow, this is pretty freaking awesome. <laughs> you know, like, get me the, get me the album, and, you know, is, is this a certain sort of praise band or something? <laughs> no, he, no, you know, he, <laughs> that's the modern version. No, he, he, He's, you know, he he cries cries out, "Woe is me! I'm a man of filthy, unclean lips, and I'm dwelling among a people of filthy, unclean lips. And how can I be seeing this in this picture? And that God hasn't struck me dead yet. And remember, the angel takes the charcoal, which is a symbol of uh, fire, is a symbol of purifying, and puts it to where our lips, his lips. Remember." Get more burned lips that way. But uh, because the mouth speaks out of the abundance, it fills the heart. Why do I say so many gosh darn despicable, foolish, stupid things? If you've been around me very long, you know I do, <laughs> right? Why do I, why do I say so many sinful things? Duh, because my heart is so wicked. Right? And the mouth speaks out of the abundance that fills the heart. Now, of course, by the grace of God, God has sanctified me and so forth. And therefore, I'm actually claiming that listening to these CDs is worth it. <laughs> and, I, and I hope if it, uh, the Spirit of God is bearing witness to you that it is, that it is worth it. I'll finish up and, uh, by, I don't know, we'll see. Uh, we'll take a break at 10 or so when I get through this part about man. Um, now, when you're talking about is man valuable, 
I just gave us a rough overview, but I want to attack the same question. And is man a valuable from another direction? Value is always in relation to something. Everybody knows that because every, uh, I'm pretty sure, looking around, yep, er, uh, almost everyone in this room has had a job. And when you have a job, you spend your time to get money. So you're saying, it's worth it for me to hang out at this place to get $9 an hour, $12 an hour, $17 an hour, $80 an hour, whatever it is. And the reason people get educations and get skills and and become craftsmen or tool and die apprentices or lawyers or whatever is they're hoping to get more time value out of more value out of their time. One thing I discovered after uh you know, in the 90s when I left the ministry and uh, when you is, uh, you know, making $80 an hour is a whole lot easier to make ends meet on than when I was a pastor making like $7 an hour or something. And uh, it's just a lot easier to make, you know, so you're, you're trading your time for value. Right now. So the reason people buy Rolex watches or any number of other stupid things is if you look at it, people who are poor spend all they get instead of investing the, what a high percentages of what they get. And they just, they get convinced by the world and the flesh and the devil that I need this and I need that. And I need, and I need, and I need, and I want, I'm a material girl living in a material world. Give me more. <laughs> and uh, no matter how much you get, you just spend it. Because you value the things. And everybody's definition of what they value is different. You know, if you're, we don't have any British people, but there's, there's actually a kind of tea that costs more per ounce than, four, than 14 or 18 karat gold. And so, like, you, when you, you know, so you're, you're actually having like a $350 cup of tea. <laughs> But if you really like tea, that might be your values, right? So everybody, everybody is doing that all the time. Uh, if people give to God's church, they value God. If they give to a savings account, they value the time growth of money. <laughs> now. Now. When you talk about the value of man, therefore, it's always postulated is all values are in relation to something else. So it's inescapable that human beings will be valued in relation to other things in the creation. So in a time when uh, there was a Judeo-Christian consensus of thinking in Western culture, and then along came Darwinism. At first, human beings were no longer seen in the image of God. Look on the right of your outline there. Three positions on man's value. No longer was it the Imago Dei. But man was just uh, the same, just a higher evolved animal. 
But initially, there there because of this Judeo-Christian thing, and that things aren't don't change on a dime; they don't change abruptly. Initially, there was this idea, well, that man is the most evolved of the species. But 150 years, well, going on 170 years has gone by, and uh, little by little, now man is just a product of conception. What what right do we have to say that in evolutionary thinking that um, Anvesh is worth more than a dolphin? And there's still sort of that idea because like most people would say that you know, like, say, primates like orangutans are worth more than mosquitoes. And a lot, you don't get a lot of people crusading out there like, save the mosquitoes, save the mosquitoes. You know, uh, so there's, there's still, but, but why? There's no basis for it. Unless man is made in the image of God. And if man is made in the image of God, again, people always wonder, well, why did you take some person who's really in trouble, who's about to go to jail or about to go into a mental hospital, uh, and they have no possibility of becoming a leader in your church in the next 5 to 10 to 15 years, uh, if, they, if they really walk with God, maybe they could become a leader in 5 or 10 probably more like 10 or 20 years and maybe they could actually become gainfully employed and actually tithe so basically like you just invested hours and hours and hours of bible studies in this person and you can't there's nothing you can get from it why because that's what jesus did for me and if you're, this is very important because if you're going to be in this disciple-making situation, the reason I can tolerate longer meetings than most people and the reason I can meet with people till, you know, I, I'm the first pastor I've ever met that the people I'm meeting with get tired and want to quit the meeting. <laughs> because almost all pastors, you're on the clock as soon as you're talking to them, right? Yeah, I believe in the 50-minute hour, by the way. just wanted to let you know that... Um, when 50 minutes comes, I ain't talking to you anymore <laughs> until I get your check. <laughs> you know, right? Now, that's really, really important to see. Because why, why would we go pick a drunk out of the gutter and disciple them? Why did God love on some of us? What I love, one thing I love about Grace Christian Fellowship is almost everybody was a mess. <laughs> There's a few exceptions, but most of us were not what they, they, you know, in the mega churches, they pray for low maintenance people. That's why they moved to the suburbs. <laughs> because as a general rule, the further you get away from the culture of inner city poverty, the more education people have, the the less messed up lives they have uh, and so forth. And the whole thing's been falling apart uh, steadily in since the Great Awakening in the 1760s and the culture's declining and, the, and uh, more and more barbarianism and paganism has come. And so, like, we can't make the uh, little church, you know, in the neighborhood work anymore. So we go, we want, we take it to Bellbrook and Vandalia. In, in Dayton Christian schools that started in the 60s, 
was the largest Christian school uh, movement in the history of America. And they've left the city because they can't make it work in the city. Because the type of Christianity we have, what is Dayton Christian Schools known for, unfortunately? Not that I don't applaud. I, I know Jim Schindler, Bud's brother, and meet with him regularly. I don't you know, I'm, I'm sad for, for the state of things, but the state of our Christianity is the schools known for sex, drugs, and rock and roll. The same as public schools are known for. So, um, and all that gets down to like, like all of our ways of doing church are negating the value of each individual. It, we until we get to a place where we measure what we're doing one rescued life at a time, and I'm not talking just a sinner's prayer, but I'm talking the the end of their fears the end of their hurts, the end of their worries, the end of their confusion. They're clearly seeing the kingdom of God the, to where they, that every person becomes a minister. Uh, that their brokenness becomes God's power in them. That's because you're valuable. Be, why? Because God said so. He made you in his image. Last question is, does, is man more influenced by his nature or his nurture? And another way of saying that is, are we more influenced by our heredity or our environment? Now, nobody of any worldview uh, doesn't say both. But there tends to be more emphasis in the, in the biblical worldview there's a lot of emphasis on your heredity. We were born descendants of Christ, or descendants of, no, uh, we're gonna, we need to be reborn as descendants of Christ. We were born descendants of Adam and Eve. And there is such, such a thing as generational curses and so forth. And so uh, we carry spiritual DNA into the world. Whereas if you believe man's a tabula rasa, it's all about his neighborhood. Now, the Christian view, as all views, are involve a mixture between the two. But the Christian view would put much more weight on the hereditary or the nature issue than the, than the humanistic worldview would. And that's why we wouldn't just say we need to throw more money at this problem or that problem. Because if we're not, you know what, we can teach reading all we want in the schools, as we do. But the hope in teaching reading is that they'll actually read their Bibles and they'll experience John 8, that if anyone uh, reads my word, he'll become a, you know, a, disciple of mine and and he'll know the truth and the truth will set him free that's why the puritans had what was called the old deluder acts the re, the actual start of public schools in america was the idea that the town and the towns which of course centered in churches back then should provide education because no you can't overcome the old deluder if you can't read 
in all the discipling we do, there's nearly 100% correlation between those who read more of the word and listen to the podcast and, and start growing in their ability to hear messages and, and, and stay focused and their vocabulary skills grow and therefore their reading comprehension grows. That's always related to their character development as well. So that's the, uh, that's in a nutshell, all of these um, relate to each other. These three, again, the second question breaks down into three questions. The first question is who or what is ultimately real. The second question is what is the nature of man or the intrinsic nature of man? And that breaks down into three sub questions. Are we basically good, basically evil, or basically a tabula rasa? You should be able to say these questions in a number of ways. Secondly, does man have innate value, especially in relation to other beings and other parts of the creation? You know, I remember sitting uh, on a plane talking to a very bright young man. Uh, I think he might have been from India originally, but he was a, he was a research scientist uh, with Florida University, and they were uh, making some real breakthroughs in a particular kind of research. And he said, we're at the phase now where we're testing um, our solution to brain cancer using DNA and so forth on, on pigs and so forth. And we have to be really careful that the word doesn't get out or the PETA people and all these people will come and try to shut us down. Because again, in their worldview, why should, why should we test these things on rats to save human lives in the end? Because you'd have to believe that human lives are worth more than rat lives. And in certain worldviews, such as naturalism or Hinduism, human lives aren't necessarily worth more than rat lives. See, so everybody has these ideas in them, and it does, you know, the average Christian today is not being taught any of this stuff at their church. I'll bet I've hit you with some ideas tonight that you never heard of before or hadn't thought about much. Now, that's a tragedy. You should have been brought up knowing this stuff. So, again, if you believe man's a blank slate, these have overlapped these three areas, nurture or nature, because then you're going to, if man's a blank slate, then it's all about his environment. What we need to do is put people in better environments. The problem with that is sometimes, uh, you know, adopted children grow up in the best families and they don't turn out as well as you would expect for that family and so forth. Why? Because there's also underlying spiritual DNA issues. I believe it would be wonderful if every Christian who adopted children, which Christians should be doing, also knew about deliverance and inner healing and the power of God. Because until they're reborn in Christ, until the spiritual curses are broken, and, you know, when you're reborn in Christ, you just earn the legal right to, to, to break the demonic powers. And there's other, if you're a reborn Christian and you hold on to unforgiveness, then you don't have a right to cast the demons out. That's why we ask everyone before we take them through deliverance to, to read the total forgiveness experience and work through it. 
if you're reborn in Christ and you're not willing to confess your sins and repent of them uh, and renounce them, then you don't have the legal, you're not, you have to break the legal rights to cast the evil out. Whether it's the power of sin or iniquity or the power of demonic spirits or generational curses, all three of those things can be part of your spiritual DNA. Which is why, uh, you know, the enemy loves people to get if they can't if he can't keep them from being born again and baptizing the water and baptizing the Holy Spirit, then he wants to keep them from focusing on going through the deliverance and inner healing they need to go through, and constantly being distracted by other issues, and never focusing on getting ready and going through that. But when you go through that, and you know, I encourage you to ask Stephen Leopold his testimony in that regard. When you go through that, it's a life changer. Ask Catherine, ask myself, uh, because I went through deliverance three or four times in my first four or five months of being a Christian, my, my, the, the next 41 years was changed a lot. Well, let's take a break there.